Welcome to the Corporate Legal Ops Consortium podcast, where we dive deep into conversations with technology and legal ops thought leaders from across the ecosystem. This is Clock Talk. I'm your host, Jen McCarran. I'm on the board of directors of Clock, and I lead the Netflix legal operations and technology team. On today's episode, I'm joined by David Cowan, exec coach and president of the Cowan Group, an executive search firm, facilitator of some of the legal industry's foremost conversations at his breakfasts and dinners taking place around the country, several of which I've attended. And David's the founder of Solid, the Summit on Legal Innovation and Disruption. Solid gathers a few hundred legal disruptors twice a year in New York City and San Francisco and features a fresh TED and table talk format. I've also attended Solid, told some stories, and made connections there for life. I asked David on the show because a few months ago, I saw his LinkedIn post about a session he held at the International Legal Tech Association, or ILTA, annual conference. His session was about imposter syndrome, and he said the room was standing room only. I'm obsessed with our obsession with imposter syndrome. Really, I'm curious about what caused this imposter syndrome endemic. It's all we talk about. And how do we get out of it? I have a hypothesis on why everyone seems to be suffering from imposter syndrome. And I think we all don't spend enough time exploring the interior. Look, it's social media, our on-the-go lifestyles, busy families and to-do lists, everything digital and virtual. It actually drives people further into loneliness. And it's really hard to be alone with yourself. You'll hear David's theories on imposter syndrome in this convo as well. David and I took this opportunity to catch up on all things, like why he started Solid, our thoughts on the metaverse, morning routines, our very first kinetic conversation in the halls of clock, and cultivating that inner voice of confidence that can dispel all imposter syndrome. What a great convo. I hope you learn as much as I did. David, you and I met, can I tell the story, in the hallways at clock. In 20, I want to say eight. 18, 17. I want to say 17. 17. It had to be 17. And I came out of some session and you came out of some session and there was steam coming off both of us. I think at Corporate Legal Ops Consortium's big annual conference, the conference happens in the hallways. You smash into people with energy, something you heard. You have new data. You want to do something more. And you and I just smashed into each other and you were like, hi, I'm David and I want to do something more. I'm thinking about this thing. And I'm like, I'm Jen. I'm finding this conference really good in some pockets, but it's missing something electric where we go and talk about the innovation and story, tell the thing. And like, I don't know, a bigger, more organic way. Do you remember this combo? We were smashing into each other like two atoms. Well, I had been thinking about what you were saying for a year and what came out of that was solid which was TED Talk, Table Talk, Town Hall, which is what I wanted from Clock. So I'm in this room and I'm listening to these speakers and I'm like, I want to go up and tackle them and go like, wait, I want more and have, I want to have a conversation with you about what you just said and where are we and where are we going? And so you and I crashed into each other and you felt that way and I felt that way and Solid was born. And I still think Clock is, I mean, I think besides Solid, I have to say, (laughs) because how could you not? Besides Solid, I think Clock is hands down the best conference in the industry. 
here's what's great about it. I think the sessions are really, truly educational. You're really hearing from the best and the brightest about what's now, what's next and what they're doing. And then you have the hallway conversations and then you have the prescribed networking events, but it's the right people. And now you've got three generations. I think it's really the only conference that has the top, the middle and the bottom. And I wrote this blog, which was, I went to clock the first time we came back from COVID, from the pandemic and the lockdown. It's like, I look to the right and I look to the left and I'm like, I don't know anybody here. More than half that room was new. Yeah. And that's what was encouraging. That's so true. Three generations are in that room. When we met, it felt like two generations and I felt like the younger one. Yes. And I was understudying all the founders and I learned so much from them. The conference was amazing. But you and I were looking for a different kind of electricity. You came out of there and you said to me in that hallway, I'm starting this thing solid. Summit on Legal Ops Innovation Disruption? Summit on Legal Innovation and Disruption. Yeah. Summit on Legal Innovation Disruption. You're like, I'm going to start this thing that plays off of storytelling, TED Talk, and more of a two-way combo. There's the amazing stage moment, and then there's the table moment. And we're going to do it. Are you in? And I'm like, yeah, this is a like 90-second combo. I'm like, I'm in. You call me a few months later, and you're like, I'm at the drawing board now. And you were in go mode. You were smashing people together on calls. I'm at Spotify at this point. You smashed me on a call with Jeff Marple. I don't even know what I said, but you were like, I have the pair here and it's you and Jeff Marple. Jeff was at Liberty Mutual doing legal innovation then. And he's now over at KPL, Kiesel Propulsion Labs with Justin Hectus, my favorite tech partner in the Crushing universe. It. Crushing it. And he's, he's the East Coast vibe. And we didn't know each other. And Jeff and I start just workshopping ideas on a call of a story of innovation. And we came up with this seven minute format, which you invented. And you want the greatest out of someone, put a time constraint on them and go, you got to tell the whole story in seven minutes. And Jeff and I worked on that for several months in person and virtually writing this story. We came to Solid in September. It must have been September 17 and told a story of what I did, something I built in the first four months of Spotify. And me writing that story with Jeff, who's a great story brain guy, he really helped me process what the heck just happened at Spotify in my first four months. Came out on stage with him. You gave me the stage. We told it. And it was just another moment in time for me, career, inking that as a story of innovation. I had no idea what I was doing. So I said, I'm going to do an MVP. Spotify and everyone clapped and it worked when I went live on day one. And that all went down. Well, everybody loved you and it was great. And it's a great exercise. When I invite speakers to speak, they wonder how they're going to get to it. And so the first dry run is always 20 minutes. And they're like, how do I get this to seven? I said, if you can get this to seven for me, you can get this to seven for your executive leadership. You can get it to five for them. When you manage up, they really only want five minutes. Yes. Nobody wants more than that above you, a level or two yeah. above you. So this is such a great exercise in career building as I suspect it was for you, because you had your elevator pitch ready to go at any time whenever anybody asked you. They didn't need all of the detail. They could ask for the follow-up. What a great training that is for us. And I learn now when I go into a presentation where I am now at Netflix, I'll bring in a 10-minute version. If they give me 15 minutes as a slot, I write to 12. And I rehearse and write to 12. And I stop at 12, no later. They're loving it and impressed. But then things go awry with execs or meetings or big meetings. 
I come in with an eight minute version a five and I come in with the one. I come in with a, if I have 30 seconds in one slide, what am I going to tee up to come back to you and talk about later? And the solid format is part of the formula of that. Like you have to take your story and make it malleable to different ears, levels, people, and timeframes. So can I do a coaching moment here? Like if you're listening to this podcast, you just, I mean, you just heard a marvelous coaching moment of like how to manage up or how to work a meeting, how to walk into a room, sense the room and go, is this a one minute pitch, a five minute pitch or a 10 minute pitch? And I only need one slide. If you can't talk to that one slide for five minutes, then you really haven't done your homework. You don't need all the backup. If somebody wants it, it's there. You don't need the backup. You don't need it for that beginning. And if you want to keep the attention, let everybody else give their opinion on the one slide in the picture or the diagram or whatever it is, data that you're going to put up there. In a meeting, meetings are scheduled for 60 minutes, but meetings are not 60 minutes. They're 40 minutes or maybe they're 50. There's five minutes of intro and getting into your seat. Then there's five minutes of setup that leaves you 50. There's five minutes at the end where you're gone. So that's 45. And then five minutes, somebody's going to hijack something. So a meeting that's an hour is really only 40 minutes. Are you ready? And how many people are in that meeting? Because that's how many minutes you're going to get. So if you're not prepared in a 10-person meeting, I got three minutes to make my point. Unless you're running the meeting and then you should be distributing those minutes. So you have to divide the minutes by the number of people in the room so that you hear the voices or you're just in an echo chamber. That's my coaching moment for 200. Uh, free coaching moments on Clock Talk today. Can we play Revolution for 400? Can I have Revolution for 400 and see if it's the Daily Double? Yes. Turn to square around. What do we got? What's the revolution in the market right now? What are the drivers of change? Are we talking whole market or our legal ecosystem market? I'm always thinking about careers, like where are you going? What's next? The demand and flow of talent and whatever's on your business card today, what will be on your business card in five years? And Your career is a jungle gym and not a lot of, so where are you going? So there's a revolution happening. There's a lot of variables. There's drivers of change. There's velocity of change, volume of change, variety. Spin the wheel and pick anything you want. The variable or the driver of change that is most exciting to you right now. There is a industry-wide, across in-house companies, Fortune 500 startups, everyone is waking up to the fact that there's a better way to run a legal department. There's like a mass awakening happening. And we're seeing more and more roles popping up over these last two, three years in corners of the world and one person legal departments going, I'm starting with this. So they want to do better. They want innovation. That's what innovation means. I think that's revolutionary. It's so small. And that's how revolutions start. And we see three generations a clock. And there are not enough of us to fill the open roles. When I do market snapshots, there's lists of roles. We're all getting called for all the same roles. We have our pick, so to speak. And that's really exciting. Now, when you go inside and start doing the work, <laughs> revolution is bloody. <laughs> because we have this velocity and this conversational velocity and all this kinetic energy happening as a community at all these wonderful conferences Clock, solid, legal operators, ILTA has one, ACC and Conceros. But then we get inside and there's still legal professionals and lawyers who are doing the work and sometimes don't have the understanding of what we do, the bandwidth to understand or follow along. And 
we still have to start at the beginning and go very slow and it's bloody. So what do I want to say to that? What I want to say is if you're at the beginning of the beginning, if you're the beginning to the middle where you're doing the work and you're not really sure like what happens next, don't wait for what happens next. No. Be assertive, be proactive. I mean, how many books a year do you read? I don't even count because I don't follow metrics like that. I mean, I read two last week. So whatever that mathematically comes out to be. So if you're not reading six books a year, if you're not reading at least six books a year, you're just not in the game because you're not speaking the language that your senior level executives are speaking. Because anybody who's in a senior position is reading six to 10 to 12 to 20 books a year, which seems inconceivable. But if you're starting out your career, you're in the middle of your career and you're looking to accelerate it, pick up books that interest you on business. Do not watch CNN. Do not watch Fox. Like enough of the CNN Fox time. Corporate news has little to offer to keep us sharp as these knowledge worker extraordinaires that have to stay on the forefront of change. I mean, that's also the revolution is that tech doesn't stop getting better and expanding. And now there's a startup that does this or that. And you're the one in your legal team expected to know how to translate what that can do to your general counsel, their leaders or their legal professional staff. Correct. You have to know everything I do is translation and books and going deep with these experts, these authors give you language and empathy around all of that. It's the language as much as anything else, but it's the way they think. And the way they think is those are your clients. The law department's not your client. Marketing is your client or IT is your client or some, there's somebody else within that organization. R&D is your client. The business units are your clients. The organization is your client. What's going on in the business? What's going on in the business world? If you can elevate just a little bit like that and understand and put yourself in their shoes, stream Bloomberg for five minutes or 10 minutes a day instead of CNN and Fox. Forget what's going on in Washington. What's going on in China with chips? That's interesting. Like what's happening in the business world is going to do you a lot more good. I think when you sit at that table in the law department. I agree. I completely agree. You and I have been vibing on books at every dinner, every lunch we've had. The book always comes up. The book came up with you the other day. You are reading The Metaverse. I'm reading The Metaverse by Matthew Bull, which I recommend to everybody and anybody who wants to know, like, what is this thing? Here is the primer for it. And that will set you off on any one of a variety of paths. The other book that I love right now is Adam Peck's book, Think Again, where he challenges your assumptions. Like, if you were thinking like this, like, let's think a little bit differently. Wait, is it Adam Grant? I'm sorry, Adam Grant. Adam Grant, Think Again. Adam Grant's writings are really interesting because he is an organizational psych expert at a UPenn. It cuts into behavioral economics, what makes people tick. It's fascinating. He's co-written a book or two with Charles Sandberg. His quotes on LinkedIn are really just spot on. Think Again is another one. So I started the metaverse just to be able to chapter one with you. What is the metaverse? Can you give me the chapter one highlights, the David Cowan edition? So the metaverse is essentially the virtual, you know, it's web 3.0 or the virtual world. So there's the physical world that we're having right now. And then there's the virtual world. And really everything that's happening in the physical world happens in the virtual world. And if you're listening to this podcast, what you need to recognize is like, it doesn't matter that you're never going to use it. What's important for you to recognize is you're probably a legal professional at some level and your client's going to use it. If you're with Miller, beer, they're going to have a party in the metaverse. They probably already have because Heineken has a tasting 
in Decentraland. I've been to a, the Heineken plant. Name dropper. Yes. <laughs> Their businesses are there, which will draw contracts there, which will draw events. And legal apps and tech people are putting the tech and process beneath all the things of a company's contracts and events and or litigation. And so here's this virtual event that's taking place, yeah. but there's going to be liability and there's going to be privacy. Yes. And so we're going to have some training also. There's going to be HR training. And if you do HR training in the metaverse, in the virtual world, and somebody gets hurt during that training or gets dizzy or is somehow impacted, do you have OSHA? Do you have labor and employment? What are the issues? We don't know what they are. So here's the good news. What's happening is that there's two worlds that are going to happen. The prediction is, is that it's going to be a five to seven trillion dollar economy. You can buy Nikes in the metaverse for your avatar. You can buy Gucci sneakers and Gucci purses for your avatar. You can, you can go buy, to the Travis Scott concert. You can go to the Travis Scott concert. Taylor Swift's going to play in the metaverse. Oh. oh, so who doesn't want to be there? So imagine that you can go I'm to this going. concert. Dre and I were in the metaverse at my concert. We stood next to each other. We danced. This is the future of production is someone with me, my avatar. And we had our own dance party. And what happens if somebody crashes that and gets in between you two? We had a few crashers at the concert we put on, but they were friendly crashers. And so now you're going to need legal counsel, which is the point that I want to make is that there are these two worlds. One is embryonic, if you will, and coming up, but you are going. (laughs) Imagine e-discovery for that moment where someone crashes my dance party in the metaverse and punches my avatar in the face. What does e-discovery look like there? Can we get a recording of the video? And from what vantage point? Multiple vantage points. My vantage, your vantage, and there were witnesses. We are headed for a cartoonified future. Who invented Discovery Cracker? Was that Jay Lieb? Oh, I don't know. So it's Discovery Cracker all over again. Like we didn't have the tools. I mean, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Yeah. So this is e-discovery 1998. 2000, 2002. You were in all of that, like that. You were online, deep in career when the e-discovery arc took off, went from zero to a hundred. I started the Cowan Group in 2004, placed Brian Stemple as sort of the first placement at Kirkland and Ellis, and it just took off from there. And I really got to know the leaders in the space because there was no space. And so I got to place them in those phenomenal positions of growth and expansion where they built teams underneath them. The same thing is going to happen again in this space as the demand for talent exceeds the supply, which is why I'm so encouraging and you're so encouraging, read and be curious. You don't have to know the answers to anything, which is imposter syndrome 101. Imposter syndrome 101. And to keep answering your question, you first asked me, you saw the e-discovery hype curve go and you were surfing that with Cowan Group and the work you've done. We're in the contract management hype curve now. Yes. And it's on a rise and it's turning. And that's what mo- I would guess 70% of us in these roles are working through now. Contract process solutions. It worked. It didn't. What about that? What about machine learning? What about how do you really transform how this high volume legal work product gets done. And how do you incentivize people to change how it gets done at scale to drive a business faster? It's one of the greatest business problems we're facing. It's so high volume. I'm very pumped right now. I don't know what that technology will be or the workflow or the process or the tipping point, will be, but there will be one that will happen. What's an example of that in the legal space? I mean, people say all the time, lawyers don't change law changes so slowly. 
but I simply referenced the iPad and the iPhone. Yeah, they changed. One day there was nobody with a smartphone. They all had Blackberries. There was nobody with a smartphone. There was nobody with an iPad. And the next day, every IT department in the AMLA 200 was instructed to figure out the security for the iPhone and iPads. And within two years, it revolutionized what and how people worked inside a law firm. That will happen again now with something that's going to be next, that's going to bundle it together and make it more productive because it's not enough people. We'll see. We'll see. I'm of two minds of contract life cycle management solutions. I don't know about the bundled solution that can quote, I'm air quoting, do it all, whole life cycle. I am Orville Redenbachering it where I believe tech products can do one thing really well. Why don't we let them do their one thing really well and not try to bolt on 79 other things? Because it's harder to get things to move that way and get your product to be really adding value. So I've had a big career pivot in this respect and I'm solving more like this. Like, how do we think about clauses? How do we think about repositories? I've blown it up into pieces. And all the CLM providers right now are like, oh, damn, like, what do we do? How do we sell? I don't even know what to say. But my point is, I think it's going to fragment and then go maybe through a big acquisition cycle. And you saw all of this with e-discovery. It's still happening. Big e-discovery acquisitions going on. I've watched the labels change on products these last few years. Cool. And fragmenting. And the startups that do it better than the legacy products come through. And then your bigger e-discovery players, they want them because that's a nice newer UI. And then they become part of a large product suite, but standalone. It's fascinating. And somebody gets it right. Somebody gets it right. I don't know who that will be necessarily, but I will say this, and I've said this for a long time. You show me an organization that's simultaneously investing in people and process and technology. I'll show you somebody who's going to come out the other side successfully. They might not be the leaders, but the service providers are doing exactly that. They're investing simultaneously and they are developing talent and they've got developmental programs and they're hiring right out of law school today in ways they weren't before. And so I think it's an incredibly vibrant marketplace that was siloed before, is dramatically less siloed today, which is good news, I think, for all of us, especially the client. It's great news. It's wonderful news. Switching gears, David, the reason why I asked you on this Clock Talk podcast was, of course, to catch up because we've known each other for years And I fell off with you a little bit when I started at Netflix. I was actually in my first year at Netflix on my way to one of your dinners in downtown LA. I was here a few months, moved from New York. I was so tired in my first year at Netflix. It was a big adjustment. LA, new job, fast moving legal department, hyper growing. I took one look at the freeway and I was like, yeah, I'm going to have to tell David I can't make it because that would have been a 45 minute drive to go three miles or something very short. Welcome to LA. And I feel like I went to bed for three years, working at Netflix, earning my stripes here, getting re-energized. Here I am. It's four, almost five years later. We're catching up as old friends. So nice to see you again. And you did a presentation recently at ILTA. And I read about it online. You were posting about it. Others, the comments were on fire. You did a presentation on imposter syndrome. And I heard it was standing room only and high engagement. And when I saw that, I said, I got to hear David Cowan's thoughts on this. And you and I need to kick the can. What is going on with imposter syndrome? Why is it 
all that we're talking about in these corporate circles in our roles, it's dominating the podcast airwaves. So when was this ILTA presentation? It was last year. It was last year. Tell me about what you went in hoping to achieve and what happened. Joy Heath Rush said, hey, would you do a session on this? There's a lot going on with imposter syndrome. And I'd mentioned it a few other places. And I said, absolutely. And I worked with Melanie Prevost on putting together a program on this and simply stated at the beginning of the session, I said, raise your hand if you've ever experienced or you're currently experiencing. How many people are in the room? 120, 150. That's a simple random sample if I ever heard of one. And how many raised their hand? 90%. Okay. And I'm like, okay, I know the microphone's going all around this room now. So I've got a good room. And I simply said, if you have imposter syndrome, that's really good news. Laggards don't have imposter syndrome. They're hanging out, you know, reruns of cartoons. So if you've got imposter syndrome, you're striving and you're in space you haven't been in before. So simply imposter syndrome is just, you just don't know the answer to something yet, but you will. And then you won't feel like an imposter. You just feel like an imposter when you're in space that makes you feel uncomfortable. You're like, wait, what am I doing here with all of these other people? Well, you've earned that. Somebody said, you might not have said it, but somebody said, I recognize something in you, Jennifer McCarran, that's special. And so we're going to promote you into this role that's a little bit above your head, but you're going to reach up and strive into. You're going to reach up into, and then you're like, because of your nature, you do expand into the role. And it's like, okay, I got this now. And then what happens is they promote you again. And you're like, oh, how did I get this responsibility? So when you True feel story, like imposter, by the way. yeah, well, it's your story, isn't it? Yeah. And then usually the first set of feelings I have once that those moments happen as I go into the room, look in the mirror and go, oh my God, what have I done? I'm a fraud. I can't do that. I fooled them again. And they're going to find out. That's my definition of the symptoms of imposter syndrome. So I'll give you my imposter story. I started a dinner series and a breakfast series and sort of this networking business, which is an offshoot of a staffing company. I remember I did my first breakfast and New York and DC and Chicago, LA and San Francisco. And the people that were in that room were way smarter than I was or that I am. I mean, the people that I work with, like we're in rooms with really smart people. I'd walk into a room with 10 people, I was fine, but all of a sudden the rooms got to be 20 and 30 and 40 people. I'm like, what am I doing here? Who am I to run this room of 50 people? And I would literally go into the bathroom before every breakfast, look in the mirror and say, Just give them the best experience that they can possibly have and it'll all be okay. Don't worry about it. They know the answer. But I went into the bathroom. I mean, for the first year, I mean, for 20 breakfasts for an entire year, I'd go into the bathroom ahead of the start of a breakfast and go like, it's all going to be fine. Just trust your talent. You'd first look in the mirror and go, oh God, what have I done? What am I going to do? Am I going to choke? Well, I didn't know if I was going to throw up in the bathroom. Right, right. And then there's this moment what you and I just described is a similar bathroom mirror moment. And then there's a moment where something clicks and then some higher voice comes in and the higher self and goes, you're just going to A, B, C. That's it. You're just here to be of service, to foster conversation, provide a great meal, a great setting, smart people. When I first met you, I was like, this guy is the talk show host extraordinaire. You knew how to just Keep that combo ball moving. No dull moments at your breakfast or your dinners. I've been to both. So two lessons that I've learned that may be helpful to others. One, I had a plan for the first couple of breakfasts. Like this is how it's going to be. It was going to work just like this. And the room didn't want to go that way. The room had another idea of what they wanted to talk about. And I remember learning how to horseback ride when I was seven. And I remember the instructor saying, give the horse his head. Don't try to fight the horse. The horse knows where it wants to go. And I'm like, I just gave the room 
its space. And the moment I got out of the way, so if you're running a meeting, sometimes you need to get out of the way and let people go where they want to go. To play off the horse example, something I hear a lot and we talk about a lot, my wife and I, always, she's always saying this to me. In terms of being a leader or a manager, I am the neck. My role is the neck that turns the head. <laughs> it's very similar. That. It's not the head, even though from all external points of view, you might think I'm just the head and I'm some brainiac walking around in with my team at Netflix or at Spotify. But no, I'm a facilitator of something and trying to get them to think it up and them to run with it and them to execute it. And it's similar with running a dinner. If you go in with a rigid agenda and I'm the head and they buck and you can't flex, you're dead in the water. You froze. Dinner's not fun. It's not engaging. You're not having another one. People don't give you their time. The dinner is for the dinner participants. If you're a good host, it's all about your guests. If you're of service, it's all about those that you're serving. If you're a servant leader, it's all about- Servant leadership. Yeah. This is my value of the year. I can't stop ruminating on. It's how do I be of service in these situations? And look, you're gonna freeze. There are moments where you're like, my plan just got trampled. What do you do? I mean, what I've seen you do at your dinners is you just ask questions. All you do is ask questions. You ask a question and you point at someone and go, what do you think? You're seeing this in your law firm. And then go, Jen, what do you think? And you stitch people into the combo and you make sure it's always moving. It's always moving. I'm genuinely curious. Like, what are you thinking? And then the benefit to me is at the end of 20 of those, I have 20 points of view. And now I have my own. Like I walked in with none. But 20 dinners later or 10 dinners or five conversations, I'm like, well, here's what I think. And I think it because I know what several other people that are in the trenches said about it. So I don't have to make things up. I can just go, well, Jen McCarron thinks this and so do 25 other people that I really know and respect. And I'm good with that. I'm good with that point of view. We don't have to know the answers. And so don't let imposter syndrome trick you into thinking we're supposed to know all the answers. We're not. No, you're supposed to level up and have a core four people around you that you yes. trust. Ask questions, be the neck or let them lead and be flexible. There's so much flexibility. And then you're talking about curiosity as a value that you use to pull it all forward. You're a super curious person. As are you. And when you think about your core four, you've got a core four internally. These are the four people inside Netflix that when you wake up in the morning, like if you've got a question, these are who you check in with. And externally, these are the four people you check in with. I got one in every system. Yeah. So professionally, the Netflix setting, I got my industry setting. I have people I have to turn on in a mentorship capacity and go, tell me how to do this thing under the leadership or management sun. Now, when you have that conversation, are you nervous with that conversation? You're like, hey, can we have a conversation? Can I ask you a question? No, I'm less nervous the older I get because I don't have time and I'm learning that the older you get, you learn the less you know. And that's the game here. And that's the antidote to imposter syndrome. That's the antidote. I actually know very little, but I have the tools, the curiosity and incredible persistence to go down all these avenues and get some answers to fill the need of whatever we're talking about. So we're sitting there in the room at Elta and people are feeling like I can sense that people are feeling they're supposed to know the answer, but you can't know the answer that you don't know. But if you are curious and you surround yourself with other people, 
And one of the things that we did is I turned to your partner and just ask them a question that you don't know the answer to in your professional life. Just turn to your right or turn to your left, whoever doesn't have somebody. So share pair, it's called share pairing. And just ask a question, like what's going to happen with CLM? It doesn't matter what they say. Take what you want and leave the rest. And I've lived cafeteria style for years. Did you go into share pairing at the ILTA session? Yeah. Okay. So then what happened in the room? Talk me through what started happening at the midpoint forward. The anxiety that people were feeling when they felt they weren't alone and that other people felt just the same way they did. I think people walked out feeling light. I experienced people walking out feeling light, like I'm okay, you're okay, but I'm really okay. It's okay that I don't know the answer. I can figure it out. They felt lighter because 90% of the hands went up. Yeah. This is not unique to me or you or Sally. This is happening en masse to a great group of professionals. That's powerful for me when I see other people are going through this. I'm like, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. This is an actual syndrome of our brains. No matter what you do. So imagine, you know, it doesn't matter if this is the first time you've had a child. You go to mommy and me. It's mommy and me. So you're with other people like you that don't know how to get this kid out of your bed at two o'clock in the morning or how to take away the blinky or whatever it is. If you're playing a sport for the first time you show up on that court or the first time you show up at golf camp at whatever age it is, you feel a little bit insecure because you think everybody's better than you are, but they're not. Or if they are, your job is to learn from them and be okay and trust your talent that you'll figure this out. Everyone that's listening to this podcast is the senior vice president of FIO. FIO. Figure it out. Figure it out. (laughs) As you said that I flashed back to tennis camp, first day out of school, first day at Spotify and all these moments where I'm on the dark side of it. And then you look at when I came out of Spotify and telling that story at Solid was such a huge anchor for me. It anchored for me. I need to sometimes go out into the industry and tell a bunch of my peers, this is what I'm doing. This is what happened. This is the problem I'm solving. And here's where I took it. And here were the results. And I hear it comes out pretty polished and it sounds so cogent. But when I write these stories, I don't come into them with all that confidence. Sometimes I have to write them and tell them to you and 200 people to make meaning of it. So I think that's another thing we have to do too and use our communities for. So props to you because when you took the stage at Clock, that was a completely... Clock this year? Yeah. CGI May 2022? Yeah. Oh, that moment. You were there. You saw that moment. I saw that moment and I saw the whole moment before that, the day before, when Tom and Carl did their primer on here's legal operations for all of you that are new. And I looked to the right and I looked to the left and everybody was between 25 and 35. They couldn't even spell legal operations. Is it a capital L and a capital O? No. It's It's not. It's It's lower. It's It's lower unless it's your team name, says the book of grammar. Says strong and white. So they were all brand new. And here's this primer of people coming up. And you, when you took that stage, you just owned it. I think that journey started a couple of years prior. And so when you step out of your comfort zone and you put it out to the universe, I'm going to do this thing. You may not do it perfectly or even well the first time, but you're committed to it. And if you're surrounded by good people who like your front and have your back, you'll succeed because they'll support you. Yes. And that was just version four of a story I told in front of clock when I opened the conference before Mike Haven took the stage. And 
I've told it twice since in larger settings and it keeps changing too. Like we have to tell these stories so that we even understand that I think helps with imposter syndrome is to put it out to people, be known, be seen, let it land on them, see what meaning it takes. And then when you go tell it again, it's going to have a different shape. And there's so much, I don't know, there's a lot of dimension to that. I really believe in versioning. So I call versioning iterative improvement. Yeah. Same concept. Go Malcolm Gladwell, you can go versioning. (laughs) Yes. How many iterations are you on? I mean, if you were to just look back on your career, how many iterations were there? I can't count. Like you lost count. So here's one of my favorite questions asked when I'm the interviewer. So tell me about your morning routine. I asked two interview questions. I love to hear somebody's morning routine. So I'll, I'll tell you mine and then I'll ask you yours. So my morning routine is I get up almost every day at 530. And I have a cup of coffee and I have a granola bar and I sit down with a blank piece of paper and I just mull. I have no idea what's going to come out. It's called auto writing. I discovered it about 20 years ago, quite by accident. I read a book on mind mapping and I started to doodle and the next thing, just ideas come out of like, this is my day and here's what's on my mind. And like something comes from that. That's how my day starts. And then I don't touch anything. There's no music. There's no news. There's no there's TV, no phone. there's nothing. There's a blank piece of paper on my kitchen table. Analog paper. Analog with a pen, with a rollerball. It's the same rollerball I've used for over 10 years. These are the fun, like codified things in people's lives. Like I've used the same pen, same I pen. have the notebook. I mean, I have a hundred of them, but they are exactly the same. It's like ri- four boxes. It's ritual, them. it's ritual. It's how you connect to you and start the day with... No media, no inputs, no world. Like that's coming. There's something in my brain that's been percolating all night in this relaxed way. And I don't know what it is, but it comes out every morning for me. I give it the space to come out and then it comes out and these ideas then iterate on top of themselves. And then I go to work. So then I'm at my desk at seven or 7.30 or I'll go to the gym, whatever. That may vary a little bit, but I'm online at eight o'clock. Those 90 minutes before that are all mine, 5.30 to- That's your time. It's like you're assembling you and the better ideas. That's a great way to put assembling you. Yeah. And to me, the voice that met you in the bathroom and said, Hey, this is what you're here to do. That's where that voice gets cultivated. I would bet my next paycheck. So what's your morning routine like? Similar, similar rising time. I like to get up with the birds. It's quiet. It's solitude. It's silence. It's some form of meditation or writing, or I'm going to go do mobility work. I'm going to stretch my body. I mean, we sit in chairs at desks and this is not feeling good after many years. So I'm doing some form of movement and either quiet silence, movement, stretching, mobility, or if I'm in the mood to receive info, I'll cue up my latest audio book. I always have a book going. I want to learn a piece of information. And that time is so precious. It just goes in deeper when I hear things or read things in the morning. Usually this meditative space is followed by some gym, some cardio, some weights, some something. I want to lift something so heavy or push my heart rate or something cardiovascularly. So the hardest thing I've done that day is happening in a controlled way by me. So whatever happens later in the day, I'm like, this is not that deadlift. We got this. And it trains my brain to not cower in the mirror and go, I can't do this. It trains my brain and my personality to go, you got two more reps. Or like my brain responds really well to there's only 15 seconds left on like a time burpee or push up or something. I'm like 15 seconds. Anyone can do 15 seconds. I build that voice in these little controlled environments. And then I hit the office 
whether it's here or at the physical office, anywhere between 8 and 9.30. Californians are so cash. Sometimes you can just come in at 9.30 and then get breakfast. So I get a lot done. So you've started your day with success. Yeah. And it's all controlled. So do you ever not have a successful morning? No. No, neither do I. It's ritual for me. I have a blank piece of paper. I've never failed at putting a piece of a yeah. pen. Paper does not refuse ink. So yeah. I've had success by 6.15 almost every single day every of the day. year. So if you start your day like that, you can at least go to bed knowing that I've accomplished something positive. There's a great book by, I think it's General McRaven wrote a book called, If You Want to Change the World, Make Your Bed. That's a Navy SEAL thing. Like you It's make a Navy your bed. SEAL thing. And Drea and I have certain shared beliefs too around making our bed. I make my bed every morning. Yes. Like before I even... Same. Covers are done. And then I actually go get the coffee. Yeah. I make my bed before I hit the button. You line up these small rituals and you repeat them five, six days a week. Months and years go by. You can honestly map yourself to a new performance state. That's what I believe. It's incremental gains done with discipline and repetition. Like this is success. When people call me for mentorship, they're like, how do you do it? I'm like, well, what's your morning routine? Did you lift something heavy today? Did you challenge yourself? It's not just about the steps to a CLM implant. Do you put your clothes out the morning before? I don't put clothes out, but I have a codified clothing <laughs> uniform. I'm like you designing. I mean, look around this room. Everything is designed within an inch of its life. I have uniforms and there's a feeling and I find my feeling and I go. It's Very the, Steve job. Yeah, it's the double-breasted blazer day. And I have shoes for this room and I have few clothes, classics. So I just have to kind of reach for the five things. No decisions are made. No decisions are made. I don't waste any energy on that. I have uniforms and it's really helpful. And then there's some mornings too, like it sounds super rigid and militaristic, but like the weekend, the routine will change where I'll come in my studio instead of writing, reading, or listening to the book, I'm making music. I'm making something. And there's no media between me and the piano. It's just, I got to get this like rested subconscious state, like an instrument. And I'll put something out there that way just to make, because that's also a huge part of the equation for me. It's how I push into the unknown. So this is my other favorite question. So you're like seven years old or nine or 10 or 12. Like what was your dinner table like growing up? I actually think about this a lot because I look at people at dinner tables sometimes and I'm like, wow, you were not drilled in with manners like I was. (laughs) My dinner table was there was a dinner time every night, a formal dinner with the four of us, then five of us, parents, brother and a sister. And we had our assigned seats and... We talked about whatever went on in the day. Sometimes the TV was on, sometimes it wasn't. And we all ate together and there were manners. And if we weren't eating over our plate, we were reminded of that until we did. And if we dropped food on the floor, we had to pick it up. And we were all very hungry. My family are solid eaters. So we're like devouring the food and fighting over it. We were encouraged to eat a lot. We were all very active. And then it was pick up your plate. It was, can I be excused? And if I didn't get permission, I sat until others were done. If I did, it was take your plate and put it to the sink. It was like marching orders. It was militaristic. It was awesome. And it taught me so much about life. You can tell when people didn't have that kind of collectivism and code around the dinner table. That's true, but they had something else. And that's the trick when you interview. 
or the challenge when you interview people, you can find someone who's overcome the chaos. A lot of people have chaos at their dinner table. Like, that's okay. Everything's okay. Whatever your dinner table was is okay. If you've overcome it and you've learned from it and like, I don't do that anymore. We don't roll like that in my house. In my house, it's like this. It was like this and now it's like this. But you can tell a lot about somebody who was like, I came home alone. There was never anybody there. So I would do my homework. And like they had their own self-imposed discipline. Those people to me are fascinating because I had mom and a dad and like we sat down and we talked about politics and religion and like what was going on and what was your day like. So did you ask a good question today? I'm like, oh my God, did I ask a good question? Jeez. You wonder wonder where I get it from? I get it from my dad. It's like, did you ask a good question today? Like no matter what question I ask, like, that's the best you can do. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a good point. I'm also fascinated by people with all the self-discipline. After I left the house at 18, I had to reteach myself all of this and find my new flame. When you lose the structure of that, you have to find it. And it took me a while, but here we are. Well, we sur- I find that I surround myself with very like-minded people. Yes. Part of the formula. For me. Yeah. Same. David. This has been awesome. Thank you for coming to my studio in West Hollywood. We covered it all. I wanted to cover imposter syndrome, the metaverse and solid, how it changed a part of my career towards way better. And yeah, it's so good to catch up. I just want to say that you don't live far from the Showtime studios and I'm going right over there right right now. I'm going over there right now to represent you and let them know that there's a talent living, they just, I could throw a stone and I could hit Showtime's CLM solution. You're, you are their next rising star. Really? I'm going over to represent you. I'm, Great. I'm shifting gears and I'm... Tell them that I think the L word Gen Q has holes, but I admire their putting that show forward and representing <laughs> our people. They, you, they really gonna, could I'm do I'm not going to start like that. Okay, okay. okay <laughs> great. Finish like Don't that. come in swinging yeah, at yeah. their content. No. I'm just going to try to get you a $3 million contract and then you take it from there. How about that? You get me a contract, you get to negotiate it. Let's do it. Fist bump. See Boom. you soon, David. Thank See you, you out Jennifer. there, Clock Talk. That about wraps up this episode of Clock Talk. Thank you, David, for coming on the show. And thanks for listening. You can catch this and other episodes of Clock Talk wherever you stream podcasts. Till next time.